Hey, this is Empowerment Coach Ashley Baxter, host of the Courageous Word Podcast. However, this particular episode is for my old show, the Restoring Heart Podcast. Although I removed most of the 30 episodes from that show, there were seven that I could not part with, and this is one of them. You can feel free to listen to it or skip ahead until you get to the first episode of the Courageous Worth podcast, which is entitled Helping You Live with Courageous Worth. FYI, if you do continue to listen to this episode of my old podcast, know that my business has undergone many changes since then. So some things mentioned may no longer apply. For example, my social media handle and website names have changed. Today, you can find me on social media platforms at the Ashley Baxter, and my website is theashleybaxter.com. Okay, you're still here, so I'm guessing you're about to listen to this episode. This particular episode is one of four in a series I did on sexual trauma awareness. I'm a survivor of sexual assault, so this series was very important for me to make to help get this information out there. I highly encourage you to listen to the series. There's so much helpful education in it. So thanks for listening to this episode from my old show, as well as listening to episodes of my current show, The Courageous Worth Podcast. Welcome to the Restoring Heart Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Baxter, and every Thursday, a new episode is posted to help you restore heart to your life and to the lives of those around you, because our hearts are valuable and desperately needed in this world. Hi, friends. This is Ashley. I want to thank all of you for joining in on all the episodes in this month's special series to bring awareness and education about sexual assault. I know these conversations are ones we wish there wasn't a need for, but unfortunately, that doesn't change the reality of those crimes taking place in this world. It doesn't change the reality that one in four women and one in six men will experience some sort of sexual trauma in their lives. Although we can't completely eradicate sexual violence from occurring, we can do a lot to help cut the statistics down and also do far more in helping survivors not only in their long-term healing, but also in the crucial hours following their attack. Which brings us to today's episode, which is the last episode in this month's series. Today's episode is with a friend of mine named Kathy Bullock. Kathy and I met when we worked at a camp together 15 years ago, so we've known each other for a long time. Today, she is a nurse in Florida who has received SANE certification. She'll share what that means in a few minutes on the interview. But basically, she is one of the amazing medical professionals who has received trauma-informed medical training, as well as educated on how to correctly collect evidence for a forensic exam of someone who has been sexually assaulted. This exam is also sometimes referred to as a rape kit. If you're asking yourself, do I need to listen to this episode? I can quickly answer that for you because there are actually two types of people who don't need to listen to this episode but everyone else does. So if you have ever received a sexual assault forensic exam, or if you are someone who is sane trained to give those exams, then you don't need to listen to this episode. But if those descriptions don't describe you, then you do need to listen to it. And here is why. If I had already known the information Kathy is about to share when I had been assaulted, then I would have gone to the hospital to have a sexual assault forensic exam completed. And there would have been a chance my perpetrator would be in prison today. Instead, no charges were filed because it came down to a he said, she said. So he was never arrested. He is walking around today a free man. And unfortunately, a couple weeks ago, I found that he works a mile away from my house and I pass his place of work every day. Had I known six years ago what I know now, I would have had an exam done. And parts of my reality today may have been different, but I didn't know. It wasn't that I didn't know about 
what are commonly known as rape kits. It's just that I didn't realize all the type of evidence that could have been collected from them. I didn't know that what happened to me is considered rape. And even if I hadn't been raped, but had experienced some other type of sexual trauma, since that name is commonly referred to as a rape kit, I wouldn't even thought also about having it done. And unfortunately, that exam may have been the piece of evidence that would have resulted in my case going to court. I don't want any other survivor to be in my place. I can't tell you how difficult it is for a survivor to know that a crime was committed against you that could put someone in jail for several years, but instead they are walking around free. To know that I could cross paths with this person at any time, recognizing that the fact that they are not in prison doesn't change the fact that they have committed a crime deserving of prison. And the thing is that we need this education that is being talked about on this episode before something happens. Again, if I had known this education before, I would have had this education to make a different decision. The time on how long viable evidence can be collected starts ticking away as soon as the crime has been done. Therefore, we need to know beforehand. You don't just need to have this information in case something happens to you. You also need it in case you are one of the first people someone confides in after they have experienced sexual violence. They may not be educated on this matter, or they may be in so much shock that it's not all coming together in their head, even if they have learned it before. And you can be the voice to help them know this is available. Now, I want to be clear, this is an incredibly difficult process. I never fault any survivor who can't bring themselves to have an exam done. But as you'll hear, there are several ways they can collect evidence and a patient can have the exam stopped at any time. Regardless of whether a survivor decides to have one done or not, that is their choice. But with all choices in life, the more information we have, the more equipped we are to make the best choice for ourselves. So please listen and learn. I hope there is never a need for you to use this information, but if there is, it can make a life-changing difference if you have this education already on hand. Now, a couple of things I want to mention as a preface to this episode. If you are a survivor of sexual violence, and if at any point this episode becomes triggering for you, please press pause, take a breather, or just completely cut it off. If maybe just having a summary of this episode would be better for you, then know you can always just read the summary of this episode by going to restoringheart.com backslash podcast and click on the show notes for episode 24. The other disclaimer I want to give before we begin is that during this episode, you'll hear Kathy talk about things that are true for the state of Florida. Each state has different nuances, not so much about how an exam is conducted, but more so about things like statutes of limitations and different processes. Statutes of limitation means how long after a crime has been committed that it could still be taken to court. This timeline varies from state to state and in so many different ways. The Restoring Heart website has information on this and about different legal options. It's a very high-level view. I'm not a lawyer, but it's a good starting place with information and has links to more information, such as the RAIN website, which has information on the statute of limitations for each specific state. You can find all of this by going to restoringheart.com backslash justice dash options. Okay, let's jump into the episode. Now, I would have loved to have been face-to-face with Kathy, 
because I haven't seen her in almost 15 years. But there is a bit of difference between Florida and North Carolina. So instead, we held the interview via Skype. I'm here with my friend Kathy, who is a registered nurse in Florida. She also is a SANE nurse. Can you tell us what a SANE nurse is? And I just want to let the audience know that it's SANE, S-A-N-E. It's an abbreviation. So I'll let you explain what that stands for and what it's about. Yeah, a lot of times people think <laughs> insane. <laughs> insane. Um, but it stands for a sexual assault nurse examiner. Is It's not always the same. Sometimes uh, people refer to it as a SAE or which is a sexual assault examiner. Uh, SANE nurses or SAEs or just the title, I guess. Um, it could be any medical professional. It can be a doctor, a nurse practitioner, an RN. It's a certification. That's what it stands for. Why was this position created? It was specifically created because they saw that there was a need in nursing. Nurses were the ones that kind of created this position. Um, that there was a need for uh, this type of training and expertise because there were patients that were coming into the hospital and reporting that they had been sexually assaulted or raped. And um, there was nobody to provide the proper care for these patients because there are so many elements to take care of this, um, these patients um, because there's there's so much trauma involved. And it's not like you can just go in and take the evidence and get out. You know, it's not a quick in and out kind of thing uh, where the ERs really like to, you know, cycle them through. Um, and they created this position so that they could have somebody who is what we call trauma informed, who can sit down and understand that the patient coming in is going to be scatterbrained. They're going to have lots of issues with recall as far as the story goes, then they're more properly trained on how to collect evidence, DNA evidence that would be important for a forensic exam kit or a rape kit, as most people would know it to be called. There's just more training that goes involved with it and just makes it better for the patient when they come in because they are not going to be rushed or one of the things that our, my institution has been working on is to make sure that they're not sitting out in a waiting room for six to 12 hours before they have their exam done. We try to bypass that whole process and uh, make sure these patients are seen in and out. And when I keep saying patients, it's because I am a registered nurse first and foremost. So it's going to always be, I'm going to be looking at the, um, the person that comes in front of me. Yes, they're a survivor of sexual assault, but they're first and foremost, my patient. First thing that, you know, we do is just make sure that, that they're okay. You have to do a, like a triage of, um, if they're having, you know, a bleeding, they're bleeding, or if there was any kind of weapon use that, um, could have caused any kind of trauma, they need to be medically treated before I can do any kind of exam or a kit. So they're considered patients when we refer to them and when you went to nursing school, what type of nursing did you go for? So I went to school to become a registered nurse, and I had no idea what that really in a, looked like for me because I didn't even really know what nursing was. <laughs> I went into nursing school, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a nurse one day. <laughs> um, but I went into pediatric nursing for nine years. So I did a, a, I worked up in the pediatric ICU for nine years. I heard of the same nurse program uh, through my hospital through an email one time. 
And it was something that kind of spiked my or sparked my interest because I had known people who'd been sexually assaulted. And I also had an experience of it happening to me um, when I was younger. And so it was something that I kind of felt like, you know, maybe this is something I could do. That thought kind of left my mind for a while. But actually, after I was assaulted again in my um, late 20s is when I went in for my own exam. And the same nurse that was there was so compassionate, was so helpful with just getting me through the process and making me feel like she believed me, which was so important in that moment because I felt already so many questions. And then I just felt like this was something that I could do for other people. If I can make it through this, I could do this for like other people because she made such an impact on me in that six hour process that day that just it impacted me forever. And I still talk to her to this day. So it's one of those things that I felt like I could, I could do this. And um, so I went through the training, which is very extensive to be able to help others. How many years have you been doing that now? Um, So I was fully trained. I went through the training in 2016. And so I've been doing uh, on-call shifts ever since then. So I already work about 36 hours to 40 hours a week doing my regular job. And then on the weekends or nights, I will just sign up for call. And we have a few different nurses. We have, I think, eight in our program that are same trained. What that looks like is we just pick up shifts on the calendar where we feel like, hey, I can work this extra shift. And it means that I'm at home with my family or whatever, and I have my phone on me and I have to be within 15 minutes of the hospital. If I get a phone call that says that there is a patient that has walked in and has said that they've been assaulted, then I can get there. They'll be fast tracked out of the waiting room straight to one of our new exam rooms uh, where they can sit there and wait for me to get there and start the process. I feel like I've heard different things about some locations struggling to have enough sane nurses. It is really hard to find a sane trained nurse in a lot of um, institutions just because honestly, in the state of Florida, I think there's only like 240 something trained nurses um, for for sane nurses. And that's not very many when you think about how big the state is, how many people live in the state, how many hospitals there are in the state. Um, And it, it honestly is a shame because Um, It's really important for the patient that comes in or the survivor who has experienced that sexual assault to get the best care that they can when they come in the door. I know in our facility, we're even struggling to make sure that we have 24-hour call, you know, coverage, 20-hour coverage for all of the patients that walk in. And if there's not somebody who who is seen trained at the moment, then that exam falls on one of the doctors who are, again, not quite fully trained. I know you kind of jumped on this a time before, but can you go over more so what it looks like for the exam process itself for a patient who comes in? When the patient comes in, for us, they are fast-tracked through the ER, and I sit down and introduce myself and explain to them that all I'm here to do is to help them because I... And first and foremost, their nurse. And that's what I signed up to do when I became a nurse was to help people. So I just make sure that they know that they're in a safe place and that they will be heard. Just let them kind of tell me their story, what's going on and why they're here. And so they come in the door, they tell me a little bit about what's gone on. But most of the time when they first start, they're, they're kind of 
um, they're still in shock. And so it takes a while to kind of gather your thoughts together. Um, so in that time, I also try to ask them a little bit more about their medical history. So I start with their medical history. If they're having any kind of wound or if they have anything that's in dire need that they need to see medical attention, I, um, then I call physician to come in and examine them. But um, more often than, than not, that's not the case, thankfully. After I take that medical history, I have to go through the process of um, getting their consent to do the exam. It's important that I get their consent and make sure that they understand their, that I have to have their consent to do certain things that I'm going to do because somebody has just taken away their ability to have consent. When I say this form talks about consent for every detail of things that I'm about to do, it's very you know, specific in the things that this part is what I'm going to do next. And this part is what I'm going to do next. And I want you to initial each part that you're okay with me doing. And at any point, you're allowed to tell me no. If you say originally, yes, and you told me later on, I'm not comfortable with this, I want you to stop, then I stop. And that's the end of the exam. And so that part is very much stressed, stressed at the beginning so that they know, again, that they feel safe where they're at. After that process, which we go back into the story and it's a narrative. Um, one of the parts of collecting the evidence into the forensic exam kit is getting their narrative. So as much as they can, they try to piece together all the details of the event of how it happened, what led up to the event and the details in very as much like specificity as they possibly can of what happened, what went where, how did it do this? And, and then the events that took place afterward. Who did you call? Where did you go? Who were you with? Um, if you have the address, did you know the name of the person that did this? Was this a stranger? Was this somebody you were out with? Was there weapons involved? Was there alcohol or drugs involved? And again, stressing, I don't care if they were because it doesn't change anything. So a lot of times, patients will say no at the beginning and then later on say something like, well, I think that there might've been. And so it's just reiterating myself multiple times to make sure they understand um, the importance of trying to get the specifics down. Once the narrative has taken place and they, I've gotten all the details um, clarified, then we can go through the head to toe exam. And that's literally me just eyeballing them from head to toe. The patient has to become in the nude and they get down to a gown. I can kind of look down their whole body from head to toe and make sure that there's no injuries. And this is where I think becoming sane trained is the most important. Regular physicians and nurses are not trained to look for specific injuries that happen during assaults. The training that goes into it for a sexual assault nurse examiner is very extensive and they have continuing education classes as far as you know, identification of injury. Within the first 24 hours, you're not often going to see any kind of injury. Bruising is not going to show up, you know, until later on. But if a patient is saying that they were held down or strangled, you, you can, we have ways to kind of look to see if there's injury going to show up later on. If a patient were to say, oh, well, he spat on me, then what we do, that's part of the head to toe. We're not going to touch. All we're doing is looking. There's also light sources for us to show on the body that will illuminate certain things like saliva. That just helps me as the examiner to know what I'm going to swab for and what I need to collect. And it's important that their story, as the, that I got in their narrative, is also something that I'm looking over. Okay, well, you told me that he was kissing your neck. 
So which side was he kissing so I could swab that side or I can view that side? Um, so all of that, it leads up to the genital exam, I guess you would say, if there was any sort of penetration, either even or the oral exam. That is um, when we collect all of the swabs, I guess you could say. I would say this part is the most nerve wracking for the patient because it's a lot more invasive. I make sure that they know, again, that they can stop the exam at any point. Um, explain what I'm going to do before I touch them. Okay, well, I'm going to touch your leg here and I'm going to move you right over here. And um, this is what I have in my hand and I'm going to touch you here. And so it's it's very important. They just know. Then I have a bunch of swabs I have to collect. Again, people that are not properly trained don't know how to do. It's not just, oh, I'm going to swab this area. It's, I need to use okay this is a dry specimen so I need to put a little bit of like saline on my you know swab before I swab it or else I'm swabbing something that's not going to come off of the patient's body onto my swab and certain things like that and whether or not how long those specimens need to dry before they can go into the kit or else they'll get contaminated there's certain things like that that are important and then once all that evidence is collected it goes into a kit and is sealed and stays on my person until law enforcement gets there and I can sign it over. So for the whole chain of custody and then it's off into law enforcement world. I know it's this way in North Carolina. I assume other places that they can have uh, an exam done, but they don't, they can make a decision later if they want to press charges. So, but it's still, but the person who takes the kit is still the police. And so that they have it, if that person decides to press charges. Correct. Okay. So, there are two ways. Um, if a patient comes in, that's part of the consent form as well. Do they want this exam done? Most of the time they say yes, because that's what they're there for. Um, sometimes after I explain what the exam is, they tell me no, but it's very rare. There's two different things that they can do. They can report or they can be non-reporting. And in the situation of reporting, I do the kit, the kit and I call, FD, I call the um, law enforcement and then they take the kit with them and they file it off to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and they run the, the kit there. If for some reason the, the patient decides, I don't want to report right now, I just can't decide, what do you think I should do? I can't give them any kind of, it has to come from them. When somebody is a non-reporting case and they want the exam done, they, on their consent form, mention how long they want the state to hold their kit. It could, they could choose seven days and then the kit will be destroyed. The non-reporting cases, the kit is still collected. It's taken by law enforcement and it goes and sits on a shelf until somebody says they want to report or that statute of limitations is up and um, then they will destroy the kit. But they will not destroy the kit unless they have your permission to do so or they will notify you that they are doing so. That's at least in the state of Florida. So if a patient decided... Say they got through the narrative part of you collecting the narrative, and then it got to more of the physical exam, and they decided, no, I don't want to do that. Does that make the kit incomplete, or could the narrative part be submitted if they decided to, you know, press charges eventually? It would all be sent, um, because it's still part of a report. It's, a, it's still a report. Um, if they decide they do not want to do any more swabbing, then that's what we do. That's when we stop, because... Again, it's all about their consent to do so, and we're not going to force anybody to do it. So I make sure that my, um, my patient knows, though, that the chances of anything coming from that kit, any sort of prosecution, are less 
dramatically less if there is no DNA evidence collected or even just any sort of swabs. How long can evidence typically still be collected? There's been so many advances in technology um, over the years that I think that I recently read something that they were able to collect DNA evidence off of somebody seven days after the event happened. But you have to remember that we have oils on our skin that are constantly secreting that kind of help wash away things. Um, If it was any sort of internal like penetration, like vaginal secretions even are, you know, constant. And so um, if you have, were assaulted, it's really important to try to go in as soon as you possibly can. Um, In my institution, we will still do swabs um, up to 72 hours, or not 72 hours, sorry, we increased that, 120 hours. So that's still five days. Wow, yeah. That's five days after the exam. But with every time that that patient showers or goes to the bathroom, things you don't think about going to the bathroom and wiping, that is all things that erase DNA evidence. And so it becomes more difficult to prove, but it could last into a body at least until seven days is what I've read recently. So, I mean, sometimes I know that their clothing is part of the kit. Is that correct? So again, that I have to have their consent to take their clothing. So if a patient does not um, want to give me their clothing, then by all means they get to keep them. But um Clothing is actually a really good tool for DNA um, collection because your clothing is where all of your oils and secretions are being absorbed. And so by collecting shirts, if somebody was kissing on your neck, then it could rub off on the collar of the shirt or um, underwear, jeans, whatever it would be. It's important to have, but it's not necessary. If they're, you know, if they're, they're able to go through the rest of the kit, um, then it's fine. But as you mentioned before, maybe they didn't want to do the swabbing part. If we can take, if I can convince them to let me have their clothing where, you know, there might be DNA evidence that they can collect from that. Are there, is there any difference with male survivors and female survivors as far as exams? Honestly, not much. Um, so it's rare that they come in because a lot of times males don't want to report. Um, in the few years that I have been doing the same nursing, I've actually taken care of three in four years. So, but it's not any different. You still go through the same process, just where you're collecting evidence is different. I think a lot of people think they only need to have a kit if it was vaginal intercourse. So when does someone need to consider coming to get an exam? Like I said, we always look first. So we look for injury. If somebody was penetrated with a finger, or if they're penetrated with an object, sometimes there's injury in there from a fingernail or, um, so you look for abrasions, you look for, you look for specific injuries like a laceration. Um, or if it's an object, maybe there's something that's splintered off in there. Those are things that could be collected for the kit. If somebody was penetrated by a finger or, um, even a penis with a condom on it. Um, people think, oh, well, he wore a condom, then it's not going to get anything. You can still swab and they will, you know, be able to get the residue off of a condom. There's definitely reason to be, to still get the exam if you, any, any kind of 
assault that you feel like you've had, you've been assaulted, you've been violated in any sort of way, if it's oral and they never even did any sort of vaginal, rectal, any sort of anything else. I mean, if you feel like you've been assaulted, get the exam. One of the things that I always encourage patients to do is to get a victim advocate involved. Um, Many people don't have a clue what that is. Um, But if you either walk into the hospital or walk into some sort of clinic and you say that you've been assaulted, ask for a victim advocate. And what that is, is somebody who either works for the sheriff's office or the police office or somewhere in their county um, that is going to be appointed for specifically this case. Like they're going to help you through the exam if you want them to. Like some patients don't want to come in with their family members. They're ashamed. They don't want to tell people. So they'll come in alone, but then they'll have a victim advocate, somebody that'll walk them through this, hold their hand, be there with them if they want them to be. And they're kind of just somebody to help them. And not only will they be there for the exam, but if for some reason this were to continue and something did come of the kit, like evidence did come back and it does go to trial, that advocate is going to still be there with that patient, is with that person all the way through the trial. It's going to help them prepare for the trial. Um, we'll sit there with them at the trial and they're just kind of there, but they're also really great for helping patient patients get things paid for. Um, in our institution, we have kind of worked with our county to create a um, prophylaxis um, program. So one of the biggest parts, one of the other big parts of my, my job is to provide prophylactic medication to prevent STDs and STIs um, and HIV. The most expensive medication is HIV prophylaxis. It's not often covered by insurance companies, but we make sure that patients at least can get the first dose um, in the hospital and then the next few doses covered, again, through victims' um, compensation. So ask for a victim advocate. Now, what would you say, because in an ideal world, if something unfortunately happened, they would go someplace where there is a sane nurse and they would go to a place that does have a great victim advocacy set up. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. What would, I mean, would you have any words of advice that you would want to pass along to someone? I would say that, I mean, even in our, my, my town, I live in a college town. Um, my hospital is the only hospital in my town that actually provides same training. So if a patient comes from an outside hospital, a lot of times law enforcement will meet them at the hospital and they're like, okay, you can stay here and have this exam done by somebody who is not trained, or we can get you in the vehicle and we'll take you over to my hospital um, to have the exam done. Um, That's not ideal because then it's, the patient's waiting longer for an exam. They're going through more trauma because they're just, I've already been here. I've already wanted to just want to get it done and get out of here. But for the patients that do go to facilities that don't have trained nurses that do these exams or trained medical professionals, I would still encourage you to just make sure that you get the exam done. Encourage you if you can be patient and just know that having an exam, even if it's not done to the extent and the, with the proper training that a same trained nurse can do, there is still the chance that, you know, if this is something that you want justice for, then 
try to sit there and be patient and go through it. Even if that's 12 hours, I mean, it could be hard. Yeah. Cause that was, um, I mean, with me, like I didn't know I've, I'd learned since, but I didn't know that cause mine wasn't the fully what I imagine or whatever, you know, but it was a way that you described earlier. And I wish I had known that, but the hard thing is that's why I wanted to do this interview is so that hopefully if some people are listening, if, you know, unfortunately something happens to them or if they know someone that confides in them early, they can have this education on hand to be like, oh no, actually here's what that process is like. And yes, if these things happen to you, this is still an option for you. And like you said, and then you can, you don't have to make a decision. Then you can have it on hand when you are at a better place and have experienced more healing to make that decision. Speaking of that kind of how, um, you know, knowledge beforehand. Is there anything else that you can think of? I know that um, this has been amazing. <laughs> You've covered so many things. Is there anything else that you think people should already be aware of kind of in case something happens to them or to pass that knowledge on to someone else? The only thing I would say is, I mean, it sounds obvious, but it's really hard to do in the moment because when you you've gone through the experience. And I think that having had my own experience, it, it helps me um, to kind of tell people what not to do. <laughs> you know, try not to take a shower, try not to eat or drink anything if it was something that was an oral assault or anything that you would think he or she did to you, try your hardest to not go wash it off immediately. And that's really hard because the very first thing you want to do is just get it off of you because you feel so gross. But if it's something that you feel like is so wrong because it is, then those people should be held accountable for their actions. And I think that, again, not everybody should, if they don't feel like they should report, I'm not telling them that they, they need to do that. That's everybody's individual decision to do so. I just know for my own situation, I just really, really wanted justice. I would just say, try your hardest to not get rid of any evidence. If you feel like it's something that you need to to get taken care of, I don't, I don't know. Like, again, in my own situation, the very first thing I did, I called a friend and she said, I'm going to meet you at your house right away. And the... Before she got there, I kept going, pacing back and forth in my own house. Do I change my clothes? Do I take these off? Do I what? What do I want to do? Do I want to? Do I want to go to the hospital? Do I want to call the police? Do I want to even do anything? Do I want to go to bed? Do I want to just take a shower? Do I want to? There's so many questions that they just constantly run through your mind in that quick moment of like, Did this really just happened. Am I making this up? Is it? Is it anything that? I did. Like, I, I don't know. You just keep going and your mind races. And so it's so hard to make those decisions that are like, all right, I'm not going to take these clothes off or I'm not going to take a shower. I didn't even think don't go to the bathroom. You have to go to the bathroom. If you go to the bathroom, but things like wiping, you know, after going to the bathroom, that's just an innate kind of thing to do. But if for some reason you feel like you have, I mean, if you've been in this situation and you feel like you've been assaulted and you still want to go to the hospital, but you cannot stand being in the clothes that you're in, take them off and put them in a bag, bring them with you. Expect to just give them away and wear spare clothes. A lot of times they'll still take your the underwear that you're wearing because again, any kind of vaginal secretions will continually come out. Yeah. Yeah. 
I am so thankful for you and other sane nurses. And I know that, I mean, I hate what happened to you, but I know that you being able to relate and those patients being able to know that they're with someone that can relate, I know must mean so much to them in those moments. That wraps up today's episode of the Restoring Heart Podcast with me, your host, Ashley Baxter. If today's episode has been meaningful to you, I'd love for you to take a screenshot of it and share it on your favorite social media network so more of your friends and family can enjoy it as well. If you are loving this show and haven't given it a five-star rating yet or left a review, then I'd love if you could hop over to iTunes now and do so. It actually carries a lot of weight to help the show reach and help more people. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show so you can be notified each week when a new episode is launched. You can even go to RestoringHeart.com and sign up for our weekly email where I'll share about each episode as it comes out and other little information with you I want to share. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you, and I'd love to continue building our relationship with you guys and connecting with you guys. So please connect with me on Facebook at Ashley Baxter with Restoring Heart or on Instagram at Ashley with Restoring Heart. And if you are absolutely bonkers, crazy in love with this show, then I would be honored for you to consider being a Patreon supporter. Monthly support starts as low as $3 a month. If interested and just want to see what that's all about, head over to patreon.com backslash restoring heart. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, do something restoring to your heart and to the heart of someone around you.